Over the long run, I view the outcome, one way or the other, more as a matter of technology than politics. From the top-down side, there is the development of big data and automated data surveillance capabilities. From the bottom-up side, there is the development of encryption tools and open monetary and information networks. Whichever direction proves more powerful will play a major role in how all sorts of things operate in the decades ahead. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are not going to waste any time today. I'm so sorry I did not get this episode out yesterday on my birthday. I tried to in the morning, um, and then I just tried to take the day easy, but I always feel... I feel like I always get in a funk in the day after my birthday because I'm like behind on things, and I'm perpetually behind on things, and then I try to take a day to relax... And I had a wonderful day. Hung out with Rad, hung out with the wife, did a bunch of Bitcoin things, and I finally got my stupid meme published. But you haven't checked it out. I have a link to the Twitter and the Noster post. Um, it was it was fun. It was a lot of work, um, but it was the first project I'd done in DaVinci Resolve and Fusion. So it just took me an enormous amount of time. But the really great thing, not only having that off of my shoulders. But the other really great thing is just finally feeling like I have settled on a video editing workflow. And I think I can finally get into some other projects that I've been putting off because I, I've been using these memes as kind of testing out entirely different software stacks and workflows. And I think I'm going to uninstall After Effects and um, uninstall Motion and a lot of these other things that I've had on my computer for a long time and used for various things. And I want to streamline and build my workflow on DaVinci Studio. So that does feel good to feel like I have finally crossed the the moat or the river uh, in that context and have finally settled on something that's hopefully will keep me more productive now because relearning software and learning entirely new setups and entirely new workflows and user interfaces, every single time I work on a project is not fun and it is insanely, painfully, awfully slow. So I'm going to take on a smaller project uh, to see how quick and how fluid it is to work now that I have settled on something and then we will go from there. So hopefully hopefully this means more video projects um, from me. So stay tuned. Don't forget to subscribe. Check out my YouTube channel because I will post most of the stuff over there. So I hope to have more activity on that front. But with that, a quick thank you to our sponsors, the Fold Card uh, for making stacking sats the easiest for getting sats back on everything in fiat is just incredible a debit card a debit card not a credit card that gives me sats back is really amazing and then CoinKite for keeping my bitcoin safe for the numerous hardware and security devices that i use from them um, they are a wonderful resource and you get nine percent back with bitcoin audible and then swan bitcoin the best bitcoin onboarding service out there definitely definitely check them out Links and goodies in the show notes right in the description of this show. All right, it is time to jump in 
to Implications of Open Monetary and Information Networks by Lynn Alden. Part 2, beginning on the section titled, What Applications Require Global Consensus? For many years now, there has been a fad around the concept of blockchain technology as it relates to decentralization. Some of the big themes have been along these lines. Internet-native money, asset tokenization, decentralized media, digital identity. All of those things indeed are important avenues of research. Bitcoin is a useful internet-native money. Stablecoins tokenize the dollar and make it more accessible to people around the world. Decentralized information protocols can give more people access to information and connections without centralized moderation or a centralized server to shut down. Digital identity gives someone the ability to prove themselves to be a continuous entity across different digital platforms and across time. However, in recent years, the idea of Web3 has been used mainly as a marketing tool for the third and fourth items on that list. Anything with decentralized or blockchain as part of its claim has tended to get a lot of capital. Venture capital firms can deploy capital into a token project, pump up a lot of hype for it, encourage users to come into its ecosystem with Ponzi-like financial characteristics, sell their tokens to retail investors after a couple of years, and walk away with big gains regardless of the fact that the project had no long-term staying power. In such an environment, user metrics are distorted due to there being so many financial incentives that are not necessarily in line with using the software for its own sake. The joke, therefore, is that Web3 has more investors than users, and the level of decentralization is often overstated as part of the marketing effort. A big issue here is that most platforms simply don't need tokens, don't benefit from tokens, and are made worse by having tokens. Sure, existing securities or assets can be tokenized, and that can be useful. Tokenized dollars, tokenized stocks, tokenized receipts for things, etc. These are centralized assets, but their peer side is expanded into a bearer asset and tradable globally by anyone with a smartphone. That's a real use case to people, although it does come with regulatory risks and counterparty risks. But many decentralized things, and particularly platforms, are stronger without a token. The purpose of a token is often to enrich a smaller number of early creators or investors, rather to enhance the actual product or solve an actual problem. The existence of a token is often unnecessary and deleterious to the project. It's often just a method of regulatory arbitrage to go around existing securities laws. Along these lines, way more things are advertised as benefiting from a blockchain than really do. A blockchain helps different entities come to a global consensus on something, and that's an expensive process that only needs to be applied to things that truly need it. Global Consensus and Money An example of something that truly needs global consensus is a shared global ledger, such as Bitcoin. In order to audit the supply of the Bitcoin network and validate all transactions, nodes need to agree on the full state of the ledger, globally and continuously. A blockchain solves this. Bitcoin is like a big decentralized spreadsheet 
that the world comes to an agreement on every 10 minutes using energy from miners and the rules enforced by the user-run node network as its arbiters of truth. This is an expensive process, but a valuable one that isn't solved by other means. Global Consensus and Assets Next down the line is tokenized assets, such as stablecoins. The centralized issuer needs to know how many claims for their assets exist, and likely needs to be able to freeze individual ones and reissue them as needed. On the other side, the user needs to be able to prove their claims of ownership to the issuer. It's less critical, but potentially still desirable, for a user to be able to cheaply audit the entire supply of other users' claims, since they are relying on a centralized issuer anyway. And then, issuers and users need composability. Pieces need to be able to interact in many different ways, relatively seamlessly, for the ecosystem to be notably superior to the existing financial ecosystem. This gives users considerable flexibility over how they hold an asset, where they trade it, whether and where they leverage it as collateral, and so forth. So far, this type of activity has benefited from a blockchain and a global consensus, although there are research efforts that suggest other avenues may exist. These can be thought of as methods to improve the tech wrapper for existing security issuers, exchanges, collectibles, liquidity and leverage services, and fiat payment services. Global Consensus and Information From there, we get into decentralized communication and social media and see that global consensus is not needed or even desirable. We don't come to global consensus on all emails, for example. Email providers make use of global protocols, and yet there is no entity that needs to or has the technical capability to catalog the current state of all emails globally. In fact, it would be a problem for privacy if they could. Similarly, Noster doesn't require a global consensus and thus is not a blockchain. Relays don't need to all communicate with each other and ensure they all agree. Users don't need to connect to every relay. The network is open source and interoperable, and users can figure out how much of the network they want to see based on how many relays they want to connect with and how many people they want to follow. Attempts to use a blockchain as an underlying technology for social media or similar types of internet experiences don't make sense in my view, because the cost of coming to a global consensus is expensive, doesn't necessarily add to the experience, and may detract from the experience. Global Consensus and Identity Lastly, digital identity also does not require global consensus. The existence of a public-private key pair, for example, can be used to prove continuous identity, or at least continual ownership of the private key, across platforms and across time. Similarly, organizations or applications can provide more comprehensive identification services and give the user the ability to selectively share part of that information with approved receivers of that information. Some of these applications may make use of a blockchain or a layer built on one. There need not be a global consensus of all identities, nor would it necessarily be desirable if there were. A Combined Example – Money and Information 
I transferred some Bitcoin from one of my old crypto exchange accounts to a mobile Lightning wallet a while ago. If I was in a developing country, even one where the banks don't let me send money out to Bitcoin brokerages or crypto exchanges, I could have earned the sats via Stackwork instead. Stackwork is a platform that, using the Lightning Network, connects people who want microtasks done to people able to do microtasks globally. Or I could have acquired some with physical cash via Azteco, a voucher system. I tend to play around with different wallets for research purposes, so I have both custodial and non-custodial varieties. One exercise I did to test different user interfaces is to quickly send some fractional Bitcoin, commonly referred to as SATs, from wallet to wallet on my own phone. Each transaction would take about three seconds. Bearer assets were jumping from custodial wallet to non-custodial wallet to custodial wallet to non-custodial wallet. Fees were a fraction of a penny, and the process was automated and within my control. I've also helped people download a wallet and send them some sats in a couple of minutes. From there, I transferred some sats to my Stacker News wallet, which took about three seconds. Stacker News is a Reddit-like website that requires paying sats to post, which helps prevent spam but is not actually expensive for human users. Users can tip each other with sats, and thus posting good content can earn you some sats. I transferred sats over to there so that I could post and ended up receiving a bunch of tips on my posts. Recently, when trying out Noster, I did something similar. I installed the Albi plugin on my browser and used it to create a new wallet. I transferred some of my Stacker News sats over to my Albi wallet, which took about three seconds. On my Noster client, I listed my Albi wallet there. From that point, users could easily tip me some sats to my Albi wallet. I, of course, tipped some other people as well and could pay for access to a premium relay. At any time, I can pull sats out of these ecosystems and into deeper cold storage. These custodial and non-custodial lightning wallets can be thought of as like cash in a wallet, with similar trade-offs as it relates to convenience and security. The combination of an open monetary network and an open information network is pretty interesting. Programmable bearer asset money can move around frictionlessly across borders and between platforms. Platforms can be interoperable with each other without directly working with each other to make it happen, simply because they are interfacing with the same underlying protocols. Server operators can be incentivized to maintain and enhance an information network via microtransactions. A set of protocols that globally connect people in terms of identity, information, and value can reduce a lot of frictions and create a lot of new opportunities. The Battleground of Privacy Open commerce requires the transfer of both information and value. Therefore, both open monetary networks and open information networks and their actual usage, rather than merely their existence, matter for the study of economics, geopolitics, and various long-range investment outcomes. In general, any jurisdiction that is attractive in the sense that people and capital want to come to it, and information can be shared freely within it and with the rest of the world, should welcome such technologies. Open monetary and information networks, especially if their usage spreads around the world in ways that are hard to prevent, enable and accelerate more value flowing into these freer jurisdictions from elsewhere. 
borders become less relevant from an economic point of view. On the other hand, any jurisdiction that is unattractive in the sense that people and capital want to escape it, and information is restricted within it and with the rest of the world in order to protect the rulers, should fear such technologies. Open monetary and information networks create more leaks of capital and information into and out of their jurisdictions, empowering their people or forcing more expenditure by their rulers to increase the existing restrictions to maintain their isolation. Financial Privacy on the Downtrend Securing your Bitcoin isn't as hard as it's made out to be. You get yourself a hardware wallet of choice from CoinKite.com. You follow very few easy steps to set it up and create a backup, and then you send your Bitcoin to it. CoinKite has been around basically as long as Bitcoin has. They are a highly respected Bitcoin company that has been making security devices from day one. The cold card is literally famous, and it's one of the most versatile and secure devices for securing Bitcoin out there. And then they have tons of other cool stuff, like the block clock. Jack Dorsey actually had the block clock on his desk while speaking at a congressional hearing. And they have the Open Dime, which is the first ever physical Bitcoin that you could exchange with people by hand. They have the Tap Signer, which is a credit card sized hardware wallet that works with NFC. So you just tap it on your phone. And they have tons of other great devices and gadgets. You can just check it all out at their store. If you're trying to keep your Bitcoin safe, CoinKite has what you need. And discount code Bitcoin Audible. Oh my God, how convenient. It's the name of this show. Gets you 9% off everything in your cart. Go to bitcoinaudible.com slash coldcard. The link right there, just to click on, is right there in the description of this podcast for your convenience. Now let's jump back in. Financial privacy on the downtrend. In older days, when the exchange of cash or coin was more commonplace, transactional privacy was the default. As the world consolidated onto bank ledgers, however, privacy began to go away. The 1970 Bank Secrecy Act, enacted into law by the U.S. government and still in effect, compels banks to file reports with the government if a customer's daily transactions exceeds $10,000. When this law was enacted in 1970, the median American annual income was less than $10,000, so the law only covered rather large sums of money moving within a day well worth over $80,000 in today's weaker dollars. However, there was no inflation adjustment embedded into the law. As the value of the dollar eroded over time, banks effectively had to file reports regarding smaller and smaller levels of transactions, since $10,000 worth of transactions occurring in a day became more and more commonplace. Every year, the government effectively lowers the threshold regarding its automatic financial surveillance, simply through inflation, without passing further legislation. Over the next 50 years, if the rate of inflation averages the same amount as it has over the past 50 years, then the reporting threshold will shrink by another 8x or so in terms of purchasing power. When the law was enacted, the government granted itself the ability to keep tabs on house-sized transactions. Over time, inflation enhanced the law, so that they can keep track of transactions the size of used cars. 
If this keeps up, it will enable them to keep track of transactions the size of lawnmowers or bicycles. This is an example of expanding a surveillance mandate continuously without having to pass new legislation to do so. Inflation serves as the ever-expanding mandate. Of course, with other technologies and surveillance methods, or with court orders or with new legislation, authorities can already see any sized bank transaction that they want as well. Information privacy on the... Privacy in communication, movement, and other aspects of life used to be expensive to violate. Prior to the widespread use of the internet, smartphones, surveillance cameras, and other technologies... The only way to violate someone's privacy was to physically spy on them, search their person, or search their property. And for this reason, the person who had their privacy violated had a good chance of knowing that it was violated. In the digital age, it's increasingly easy and inexpensive for governments, corporations, or individuals to violate someone's privacy and without that person knowing. For governments and corporations, a combination of public and private information on millions of people can be harvested automatically on all the major digital platforms and portals. That data, once collected, can be organized by various big data techniques, including machine learning, and then algorithmically monitored or made easily searchable to users of the database. In 2013, a U.S. National Security Agency contractor named Edward Snowden leaked information to journalists that revealed that the U.S. National Security Agency's surveillance capabilities extended far beyond what was previously known to the public. Specifically, the NSA was revealed to be able to directly tap into the systems of major telecommunications providers and large corporate software platforms to continually harvest information. In one of the original reports on the leak, The Guardian revealed, quote, the National Security Agency has obtained direct access to the systems of Google, Facebook, Apple, and other U.S. Internet giants, according to a top-secret document obtained by The Guardian. The NSA access is part of a previously undisclosed program called PRISM, which allows officials to collect material including search history, the content of emails, file transfers, and live chats, the document says. As our lives become increasingly digital... It has become easier for our information to be harvested by corporations and governments. Privacy can be violated automatically, at scale, inexpensively, and without the user knowing. In Western democracies, this has downsides, but has so far been generally unfelt by the domestic population. Most of the human rights violations committed by developed countries these days tend to be international, either from colonialism in the past or from neo-colonialism in the present. In authoritarian regimes, however, the consequences are more domestic. People can be arrested for criticizing their government. People can be executed for being homosexual. People can be put into camps for having a minority religion. Last year, a young Saudi woman and mother of two, who was a student at Leeds University in the UK, was arrested when she returned home to Saudi Arabia and sentenced to 34 years in prison. Her crime was that she followed and retweeted various activists on Twitter while she was in the UK. A couple of months later, a 72-year-old Saudi-American dual citizen living in the United States was arrested and sentenced to 16 years in prison 
when he returned to Saudi Arabia for what was supposed to be a brief trip, his crime was that he tweeted critically about the Saudi regime while in the United States. This also happens to people in countries that are popular tourist destinations. People have been given 25-year prison sentences in Thailand for posting pictures online that are deemed insulting to the country's monarchy. Ahmed Mansour was sentenced to prison for a decade for advocating for human rights in the UAE in a way that was critical of the rulers, as Human Rights Watch reported. At his third hearing, the judge read out six charges against Mansour, all entirely based on his human rights activism and advocacy. The court later convicted him of five of those charges, all based on simple acts of human rights advocacy, including tweeting about injustices, participating in international human rights conferences online, and since deleted email exchanges and WhatsApp conversations with representatives of human rights organizations, including Human Rights Watch and the Gulf Center for Human Rights. The court acquitted him of the sixth charge, cooperating with a terrorist organization. The court based its verdict, announced during the fifth and final hearing, on the Penal Code and the 2012 Cybercrimes Law, both of which made the peaceful expression of critical views of the authorities, senior officials, the judiciary, and even public policy a criminal offense, and provide a legal basis to prosecute and jail people who argue for political reform or organize unlicensed demonstrations. Over 1.4 billion people have information suppressed in China and are subject to varying levels of authoritarianism. India, another country of 1.4 billion people, is much less restrictive, but still gets information removed from social media and has a mixed human rights track record. Hundreds of millions of people across parts of the Middle East and parts of Southeast Asia are subject to authoritarian rule. Vladimir Putin's political opposition, Alexei Navalny, was poisoned and upon surviving and returning to Russia was put in prison and remains there until this day. A subset of Latin American countries and African countries have an authoritarian rule. It's an extremely widespread problem. Meanwhile, institutions that are largely run by developed countries, such as the IMF, gladly work with authoritarian regimes, which can help keep them in power. One of the defenses that people have against authoritarianism is private encrypted communication and information. This allows for the transfer of information and value, including in private ways. Technologies such as this will rarely be provided in a top-down way. Instead, if they are to exist and be resilient, they must be built in a bottom-up and highly distributed way. Along the way, such technologies will be painted as tools of drug traffickers, sex traffickers, and terrorists by those who are in power. And what will complicate matters is that yes, just like pages, just like the internet, and just like any powerful technology or network, criminals will be among those that use such tools. And yet those tools are necessary and can help far more people than they can hurt. The Long Debate Authoritarian regimes have often turned to obvious anti-privacy techniques in order to prevent revolutions. Such regimes want to control the spread of information as much as possible.
In Western democracies, anti-privacy crackdowns have instead been more gradual and have generally existed on the institutional level rather than the consumer level. It's easier to get several thousand highly regulated banks and a few dozen major internet platforms and telecommunications companies to comply with continuous financial and information surveillance than it is to get hundreds of millions of individuals to do so. We generally have a rolling set of reasons for why privacy needs to be violated in such a continuous, systemic, and automated way. Throughout the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, it was often argued that financial and information privacy must be restricted in order to restrain drug trafficking. Back in the 1980s, for example, pagers were a source of consternation. Quote, Although paging devices or beepers have grown in popularity throughout the labor force, doctors, delivery people, and journalists often use them. They also have become a staple in the drug business, posing fresh problems for law enforcement and threatening to tarnish the image of a booming high-tech industry. Washington Post, 1988. Message is out on beepers. Starting in the 2000s, it was terrorism financing that took center stage instead. The 2001 Patriot Act, among other things, expanded surveillance capabilities by the U.S. government in the name of fighting terrorism. The NSA's programs in the 2010s revealed by Snowden further expanded and automated that capability by connecting with major internet messaging platforms and aggregating as much online communication as possible. More recently, the public messaging around restrictions on privacy has been about child imagery and or sanctioned nation-states. Throughout 2022, the European Commission proposed legislation that would try to eliminate all private communications by mandating the automatic scanning of emails and messages, including encrypted messages, for certain types of illegal content. While everyone is, of course, against the existence and distribution of such dreadful imagery, the idea that every communication method of all citizens must be continuously scanned and made accessible to the government is argued by many to be an extreme overreach. Similarly, the U.S. Treasury sanctioning of Tornado Cash was a crackdown on cryptographic privacy methods due to its association with DeFi hacks, including by North Korea. Any entity that handles funds on a commercial scale has done various identity checks, and so various centralized private custodians tend to be regularly shut down. In the modern era, unlike in the past, Financial privacy is considered to be synonymous with money laundering. Another problem relates to tax collection. Back in older times, when transactions were more inherently private, something like an income tax was relatively unworkable. Taxes tend to be placed on property and on exports or imports and on income for large establishments or estates because all of that was quite visible and auditable. In contrast, Taxing income at the individual level was generally a messy proposition due to the difficulty and expense of auditing it. Even today, accurately taxing cash-denominated businesses remains a challenge. However, with the widespread conversion towards bank ledgers and automatic employer paychecks, it became easier for governments to audit incomes and to tax them. Employers pay their employees, report the payouts to the government, and the whole process is auditable. Income taxes thus became a dominant form of taxation. Going forward, if a meaningful portion of the economy shifts toward peer-to-peer global gig work and money and information in general become more encrypted and private, 
and money is able to be self-custodied and moved around globally, then what does that mean for government's ability to audit incomes and impose taxation on those incomes at the individual level? Such auditing and assessment could become much more expensive and for sophisticated users, potentially becomes impossible. One perspective would be that governments simply have to change their patterns of taxation over time. If indeed bottom-up open-source distributed privacy technology and open monetary and information networks become more widespread. In some sense, this would be a return to how things used to be, except in the digital realm. A greater portion of taxation would have to be on more physical, large, and visible things, such as property, major enterprise, and the logistics and sale points of physical products. The other perspective, generally from the viewpoint of the government, is that instead all privacy has to be eliminated then. Every transaction between every peer globally has to be monitorable so that it can be audited and taxed. Even if an open-source, bottom-up emergent technology is developed to enable privacy, such technology must be outlawed and or marginalized as much as possible to prevent its widespread use. It may even be necessary to place more restrictions on the developers of such technology, as the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act essentially proposed. Unfortunately, this second perspective takes on a very different meaning when we remember that billions of people live under authoritarianism and that people can readily be arrested and sentenced to long prison terms for criticizing their government, organizing protests, having the wrong sexual orientation, having the wrong religion, or otherwise having some minority or disapproved aspect of their life. Over the long run, I view the outcome, one way or the other, more as a matter of technology than politics. From the top-down side, there is the development of big data and automated data surveillance capabilities. From the bottom-up side, there is the development of encryption tools and open monetary and information networks. Whichever direction proves more powerful will play a major role in how all sorts of things operate in the decades ahead, including various economic interactions. Therefore, for proponents of privacy and open networks to win becomes a matter of making the technology easy to use, too costly to stamp out, and well understood by the public. For proponents of ubiquitous surveillance to win becomes a matter of convincing the public that privacy is undesirable and that these tools are not needed or are dangerous while enhancing their data collection and sorting capabilities. And from an analyst perspective, the challenge and the opportunity is to see where these trends are headed, which means monitoring the progress of both the bottom-up and the top-down approaches to see who is in the lead. All right, that wraps up part two of Lynn Alden's The Implications of, Mon of Open Monetary and Information Networks. Now, something I really appreciate about Lynn Alden is that when she writes her analysis pieces, she's very impartial. She doesn't make one specific claim towards one outcome or the other, it's just a pure, let's back up and look at it sort of analysis. I, on the other hand, will absolutely make a comparison 
with a judgment built in, with a moral judgment. Because, you know, when Lynn talks about the top-down approach and the centralization and the constant surveillance and level of control and these things that are trying to be pushed with CBDCs, all of these tools for top-down control, not only do they not work from a societal and economic standpoint, like they are failures by default because they are the pretense of knowledge. This goes back to something like the use of knowledge in society by Hayek, a, a piece that I will always recommend. And if you haven't listened to it yet, you fundamentally need to, because it is the arrogance, it is the hubris of man to believe that you can, you can dictate society by fiat. And that is what these top-down controlling situation or institutions genuinely are. They, are. they are the hubris of man manifest. And there is no positive outcome. They cannot control society into the outcome they desire or the outcome that they believe is best because it is the pretense of knowledge to believe you know what the best outcome is. It is to foretell the economic evaluation of things that only the free exchange can possibly give you the economic valuation of. It is the idea that we can predict the future and that we know what future is going to be best and where people should go and that we should manipulate, control, censor, and violently force people into that future when there's no time in history in which the current view would ever have legitimately or sufficiently predicted where things were going and what would be the better outcome. It simply doesn't work. It is anti-economic to believe that you can control the economy. And then in that same vein, you know, Lynn Alden talks about towards the end is that like whether or not, you know, we have these open monetary or information networks and which one is in the lead. And then talking about like these top down approaches and the surveillance and the control. And to suggest that this is a problem because of the one point where the many billions of people who live under authoritarianism. Whereas I think that kind of misses the point a little bit. And I'm not saying that Lynn feels this way or that Lynn is not making this comparison. I think she's legitimately just trying to be impartial and talking about the systems themselves as opposed to the specific application of these systems and the institutions that would control them and what they would do with them. But I think it's to suggest if, if we get these sorts of tools and systems permanently installed into Western society, it's not a matter of whether or not we are under authoritarianism and whether or not they would be, they would create negative consequences. It's that the instantiation of these things as parts of our entire societal system that cannot be, that you cannot get around is authoritarianism. Like that's exactly what it is. This would institute authoritarianism aside from any idea of individual rights or freedom or a constitution or anything like that. So it's not that authoritarians would use these tools in a bad way and therefore we don't want these systems to be built because there are authoritarians. These systems are inherently authoritarian. Like to implement them whatsoever means that we have achieved authoritarianism. And simply put... Centers of control will be abused. They will absolutely, if there is anything that the last few years should have taught us, it's the ubiquity of corruption and abuse 
in positions of political power. And I really want to dig more into this, especially like the consensus stuff. Uh, so I'll probably do, maybe I'll do a guy's take just kind of on this topic in general and have it sort of a follow-up to this episode because there are some other uh, articles that I'll be covering uh, pretty soon around these same sorts of ideas. So I want to dig back into this a little bit. I want to, I want to give it some time to, to stretch it out and kind of explore these. But I don't have time today, and I'm sorry I didn't even get this episode out yesterday. Um, and I want to make the bit devs in the Triangle bit devs tonight, and I am out of time. Um, so uh, I will try to mark down some notes to remember to talk about consensus and whether or not it's needed in certain technologies and certain types of information networks. And uh, maybe I'll just go back and listen to this whole episode again as a refresher and we'll do a guy's take soon and hold me to it i don't want to forget about it because i have a lot of things to keep up with and i am unfortunately very very behind on a lot of other things that i need to do so it's easy for these things to get lost in the mix and i gotta come back to the basics episode series just a lot to keep up with so um if you want to uh, shoot me a dm if you don't hear from this uh, or if you don't hear back on the guy's take in relation to this and you really want to hear it uh, boost or shoot me a DM on Twitter or Noster. I will appreciate the reminder. Um, okay, uh, with that, uh, let's go ahead and close this episode out. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to Lynn Alden for always the amazing work. Thank you to Swan Bitcoin for the blog and all of the resources that they provide to people, um, as well as just the general, just onboarding into Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin is such an easy recommendation. Like I just know that I don't have to worry when I tell people to go to Swan Bitcoin. And then of course, CoinKite and the cold card to have a trusted place for people to have the entire, all, all sorts of various hardware security solutions or Bitcoin hardware and security solutions. And to know that they're a long running trusted company that has been providing this service CoinKite is just a great company, and if you haven't checked out the Coal Card or used any of their products, I highly, highly suggest that you do. And they all make this show work. And lastly, the Fold Card. The Fold Card, getting sats back on my bills and everything in my life, that's just hard to beat. It's, a, it's one of the best way to stack sats with the absolute lowest friction possible. All of them have links, discount codes, free sats, goodies like that in the show notes, so check them out. And I will catch you all on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. If freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. George Washington This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.